Hey, what's up, guys? Stan here. Uh, the guys couldn't make it, so uh, you got me. And I don't know what a theology is, but I'm hey, excited. Hey, excited uh, to be here. Get, get, get it back Stan. to. Put Stan, it back you on. You got the... one job, man. You got one job. We're five seconds in. Now, what I want to know is how many people are disappointed that that wasn't true. Yeah. So anybody who saw Stan's face pop up and was like, oh, this is going to be great. And then when you found out. Well, I can I, tell you there was like three downvotes immediately that just flipped back to <laughs> nothing true. neutral or positive. Yeah, you guys can't see this at home, but there were there were seven thumbs downs the second Stan's face popped up. And now they're all positive. They're so, all back. That's true. Yeah, we got Stan on what we call the ones and twos. He stands on the ones and twos today. So that's that's different. So it could go could go bad. You know what's funny? This is the difference between Stan and Kevin's personality. And Stan is more like me, so I'm not I'm not hating on you, Stan. But we'll be like, Kevin, show every like Kevin, go to your camera, show. And Kevin's like, no, no, no. We said Stan's name once, and he flipped to his. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you are much more like me than Kevin. Good old Kevin's out of town, getting a break. Um, but welcome everybody. Hopefully everybody's tuning in, popping in here in the first couple of minutes. Any uh, anything we need to update people on before we get into to our topic tonight? We're still taking Q and A, right? We're still taking Q and A questions. That's right. So after um, this series is done, which there's only one more week after tonight of kind of the series proper, we're going to do this, and then we're going to talk next week about whether the Bible is intolerant of other religions. Those are the last two, and then we're going to do a Q and A episode about this series and about kind of weird Bible stuff in general. So if you have questions either about things we've talked about in the series or just about the Bible in general, please email them to me. My email is up there on the screen right now. Um, and we'd love to answer those. So if you have is, af, you know, if you're watching after the fact, say if you're not live and you're like, oh man, if I'd been there live, I would have asked this question or made this comment. Please email them to me. We'd love to address those in our Q and a episode. And like I said, even if it's just, you know, there's a random Bible story or verse that's troubled you send it in. Yeah. We're and going if it's, to seasons as well. That's right. Yeah. So this is going to be our first time where we're taking the show in seasons. So I don't know what, I guess this is season two, even though we've had like a. These, these are all the, um, oh, what's the term? The pilot episodes oh, before yeah. you get approved. We had like 20 pilots. Yeah. Back, <laughs> back, back in the day before like a TV show, before Full House got approved, there was a. There's a, a pilot. pilot episode. The pilots are always clunky too, because it's like the character, like they have to introduce you to ten different characters yeah. and the overall feel of the show, and try to tell. It's one different story. too. Like if you go back and watch the first episodes of The Simpsons, the characters were actually totally. Different. Almost every show's like that, where like they had to figure it out later. Yep. But yeah, so that's been that's been what we've been doing this whole time, and this is so this is officially then season one. We don't know exactly how long this one will run. We'll get it a little more organized as we go, but. That way we can kind of have a little more longevity built into this thing. So, okay, we have yet another, and this series has just been wall-to-wall -wall difficult topics. And tonight we yeah, have- Yeah, it was a bad idea. <laughs> the whole series? The whole series. It was your idea. It was my idea. Um, to be fair, it was Dan Kimball's idea. He's the one who wrote the book. And yeah, so- Yeah, this is what Dan Kimball has to say about the topic for today. Yeah, that's, this is good. We'll start with Dan's okay. intro to this chapter. I'll be candid as we reach the last section of the book. I didn't want to write these last chapters. This section deals with some of the most disturbing Bible passages, the verses that may 
that many find most difficult to understand. I can make sense of the alleged conflict between science and the Bible. I can understand some of the confusion about the crazy sounding verses that speak of shrimp tattoos and slavery. And I could see why people think that the Bible teaches misogynistic things about anti-woman. I could see the history of the world face and why Jesus is the one way and the truth. But when I read and consider some of the more violent Bible verses, verses that speak about the actions of God and killing people, I too struggle to make sense of them. Now, what's great about the book is that Dan is just super honest and yeah. transparent. I mean, he's he's not saying, I try to write this book to try to, you know, trick you into becoming a Christian. He's yeah. making a case for- Or me. saying like anyone who has questions about this just is dumb and not paying yeah. attention. Like there's an emotional and intellectual honesty in that opening chapter. When I read it, um, I was like, I was so impressed by that. I was like, dude, this is like the opposite of bravado yeah. in, in such a, a healthy way. And if- this is why we recommend this book for skeptics and Christians alike. It's like you're, 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 he's telling the truth. Note on this book, uh, Dan Kimball, How Not to Read the Bible. Uh, it's pretty much sold out. It's like way sold out. Way sold out, but you can still get copies of it on cbd.com. That's christianbookdistributor.com. Amazon sold out. I don't think they're going to have more for for a few weeks, couple weeks maybe. You can get it on Kindle on Amazon. Yeah, you no can get it on but if you want physical copies, you have to go to CBD. You can get it on Audible as well. Now, you know, not and to Dan throw, reads it actually. He does. I listened to a lot of it. Yeah. It was very comforting having Dan's, you know, voice in my He's ears while I was pulling weeds yeah. in my front yard. Yeah. Now, I I probably shouldn't make this joke, but um do you think that all of the CBD oil distributors were super bummed when they realized a Christian so, book or, they already own the domain because CBD in the last few years has become massive. Yeah, and Christian book distributors did the right thing because they probably could have sold out for they a probably million dollar domain. They're like we are going to continue to sell Christian books not non-psychoactive yeah. cannabis oil. So you heard it here first, folks. That book, well, you didn't Christian hear Christian book distributors, last place to get it until they get it restocked at other, like Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Yeah, so if you do Kindle, Dan, do that. Dan was my youth pastor. This is true. That's true. Yeah. And so, you know, you turned out okay. Yeah. So that's a pretty, that's one good thing about Stan. <laughs> so, and I know we've said this every week, but I really cannot recommend that book highly enough. Um, it's awesome. And there's, I, I would say we resonate with what Dan's saying at the beginning of the chapter there. If we're being honest, there's, there, yeah, this, this is one of those things you cannot get all the way out from under it or go like, Oh no, no, no. If you understand it, it's really easy to deal with. Um, there, it just is tough. The Bible it's, is it's difficult and you sh should expect it to be. We always say that if you read the entire Bible, and there's nothing that ever bothers you, there's no there's no issues you have, then you actually are presupposing that everything about your current maturity and placement in your geographic location and your period in time just magically, perfectly corresponds to the will and ways of God in all possible ways, yeah. which is a very arrogant thing to say. Like it ought to offend you, it ought to create tension, it ought to do things because it's at it's not written to affirm everything about you. You're not perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And if, and there's a really good chance that if nothing is bothering you, you're not digging in deep enough yeah. or you're missing stuff or misinterpreting stuff. And so this is one of those cases where honestly, especially for, we'll talk about this more later, but for modern Western people, this is a major sticking point. Um, and so the truth is the Bible is violent. Um, there is violent stuff in there. And, and honestly, like it could come with a content rating in terms of like, you know, you don't just give, a kid of any age, any part of the Bible to read, but um, it's different than we often think. There's mm. there's not necessarily as much or or you know this the nature of the violence isn't the way it's often talked about. Yeah. And so what we're gonna try to do tonight is a really what we try to do with everything, but is have an honest, 
and nuanced approach. Because there's sort of, when it comes to dealing with Bible violence, there's sort of two extremes that people go to. And one is to be sort of like, like unapologetically, you know what, it's in the Bible and you just got to deal with it and God can kill whoever he wants mm-hmm. to. And that's sort of, that's one attitude. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is to say, well, the violence just really bothers me. And so it can't possibly mean that. And so we're going to find ways. Yeah. God possibly it. wouldn't do that. Yeah. He would never do that. Rather than in, is what we always try to do is let the text lead the way, be as honest with the actual text as possible. Yeah. And more often times than not, what you'll find is that the Bible is is incredibly nuanced and doing some really, really incredible things, um, but easily misread in both of those directions. Yeah. So we do our best in this case and others to rightly understand what's there. And then when we have that, we submit ourselves to it. And this is, I think, the other important yeah. aspect of tonight to say right up front is that um, this is a, something I got from Mike Winger, who we've, we've recommended on here before. He's a great YouTube channel. Um, and the way Mike Winger talks about it is he says, you come to the Bible, you understand it correctly, and then you don't get to be the moral authority over the Bible. You don't stand in moral judgment over God and say, well, I don't like that you did that. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you submit yourself to the authority of the text and the God who inspired it. Um, I said that in the wrong order, but you get the idea. So yeah, it's, we're not going to be trying to twist the Bible to get out of anything. It's about trying to really accurately understand what the Bible is trying to communicate. And the good news is, I think when you do that, it does soften and nuance some things that can can hit us really, really yeah. brutal and harsh. So let's get into it. Yeah. All right. So, uh, and as we go, feel free to ask questions as always in the chat or make comments. Um, so there are a couple of things kind of high level. We're just going to hit them sort of out of order or with no particular order. One thing is there's this characterization that the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament, as yeah. he sometimes described, is just this bloodthirsty. It's just, this is a violent book where God is constantly killing people and commanding genocide. And the honest truth is, if you actually read this gigantic book, yeah, it that is not the case. So there is violent stuff in there, um, but it's it's just a straight up mischaracterization to say that like God in the yeah. Old Testament is hyper violent, constantly thousands of people. years being covered, yeah. tons of biblical history being covered, and what there is is there is, and we'll get to this. There's definitely violence, but it may not actually be anything that God is necessarily first and foremost connected with. It could be descriptive rather than prescriptive. Right. Not trying to teach anything, and then where we do see stuff, and we'll talk about this is there are acts of judgment that are brought upon the, the people. Now, it's interesting, though, is, uh, again, the, the, the idea that modern, many modern like memes will have is that that's the God of the Old Testament. He's completely divorced from the God of the New Testament. Now, there's good news and bad news. The good news is the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Um, no, but depending upon your, your, your bent, I would still say it's the good news, but some people aren't going to like it. The New Testament is filled with just as much acts of judgment. I mean, think yeah. about this. In the Old Testament... The threat was, and the acts of violence were concerning your physical life. Yeah, there's a threat of physical death of judgment. Jesus comes and says, "Don't fear the person who can kill your body. Fear God who can destroy your soul in hell." Right. So it ups the level of judgment. And this is what the New Testament does a lot in many different ways. So you've heard it said, "Don't commit adultery." I tell you, don't look upon a, a woman with lust in your heart. So there's an intensification of the moral and ethical command. And likewise, oftentimes in the New Testament, there's actually an intensification of the judgment. Yeah. Um, and you have Ananias and Sapphira, 
which is echoing a, st- a story in the Old Testament that's still these acts of judgment. Yeah. You have Jesus in the book of Revelation saying like, no, you better repent or else. Yeah. So the idea of the discontinuity between God in the Old Testament and God in the New Testament is wrong and exaggerated in both directions. Yes. Meaning it makes it sound like the God of the Old Testament is bloodthirsty, hyperviolent. That's an exaggeration. Yes. It's not actually the case if right. you read this entire giant book. It's one kind of narrow window of events where God is commanding military action. Yeah. Very narrow. And other than that, the violence that's there, like you said, most of it's descriptive. And similarly, the kind of peaceful, floaty, everything's all good Jesus of the New Testament is an exaggeration as well. That of course there's grace and mercy and he's this magnetically loving character, but he's also, he is not messing around either. And so they're both, you know, it's like if you have those mischaracterizations, you got to bring both of them closer to the middle and then you'll find that the more you read it, there's actually not even both there's gods no difference. are love of compassion, mercy, but also justice yeah. and holiness. And this is really important. Jesus loves the Old Testament and never is out there going like, "Hey, don't worry. There's violent stuff in the Old Testament, but that wasn't me, man. I'm not like that." For people that want to be borderline embarrassed of the Old Testament but hold on to Jesus, you have to deal with the reality that Jesus never once acts embarrassed of his Lord, God, the father or his depictions in the old Testament. Yeah. He never affirms all of it. So super important. Now, another biblical thing that's a misunderstanding. So now let's kind of z- zero in on, there is this section, which is where most of these conversations float around that, um, it's called the conquest of Canaan. Often it's, this is Israel going in to possess the promised land. This is where you get the majority of kind of God commanding military action and violence. And there's a, again, a, an, a misunderstanding here as well. The word genocide gets thrown around a lot, mm. but the vast majority, vast, vast majority of those commands, the language, and this this does matter, is not go kill all of these mm. people. The language is almost always drive them out. Mm-hmm. And so there are, and we'll talk about some of these later, there are four examples of kind of annihilation, destroy everybody language. We'll talk about those in a minute but 50 plus examples in the Old Testament of go drive these people out. And not only that, I even said that wrong because the majority of those drive them out passages, God is the actor. It's Mm -hmm. I will drive them out before you. You just come and take the land. I'm going to drive them out. And that drive them out language, I mean, that's like, it's the same language as Adam and Eve being driven out of the garden. Later on, it's going to be applied to Israel being driven out of Jerusalem and into Babylon in exile. So yeah, it's not just in the conquest. It's it's regular language of God's judgment upon people for disobedience and they're being removed from some type of blessing. The, the garden is a blessing that the people are removed for. Israel is removed from the promised land, from the blessing of the land. Yeah. And and so Israel, and this is, an, this is a good segue actually, Israel, you know, you get kind of like holy war language when people talk about this stuff like oh the old testament's this holy war of israel against all these other nations god wants to use israel to kill all these nations but israel it's really explicit in the bible actually that god's not doing this because of israel's specialness or how great mm-hmm. they are to him he actually we can actually pull this up in deuteronomy 9 5 stan if you want to jump to the text here yeah, the good news is God's judgment can fall on any nation equally, and yeah. including Israel. That's good news and bad news. Yeah, yeah. That's and why I kind of said it with a smirk. Is yeah. that it's the good news <laughs> is that you have a fair standard of justice being used. Right. Um, the bad news is is that no one is spared, even Israel. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And so listen to this. This is a verse that's really important for understanding the conquest of Canaan. Deuteronomy 9.5 says, Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, talking about the nations of Canaan, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving out from before you, and that he may confirm the word of the Lord that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Mm -hmm. So he says very, very clearly, this is, you know, Deuteronomy is kind of a big moment right before the entrance into the yeah. promised land. He says, we're not this. God's not doing this for you. This is Moses talking Yeah, because you're special or you're more righteous than other nations. It's, this is my judgment against these nations for evil. Mm -hmm. And it's me fulfilling the promise that I made to your forefathers. Yeah. Which goes into another important question. Well, why then did God did not, why did God give him the land hundreds of years ago when yeah. he promised Abraham. Yeah, that's a great point. Should we pull up that yeah. verse too? So this is Genesis 15. And this, this is really important. So again, God just said he's doing this for two reasons, to fulfill a promise and then because of the wickedness of these nations. Furthermore, if God promised Abraham this, why didn't God give it to Abraham when he first promised? Yeah. Now listen to the reason why. Why the slavery in Egypt for 400 years? So this is a this is a classic example of that verse you can read and just completely miss because it's so short. But this is in Genesis 15, verse 16. This is very, very early. God's reaffirming the covenant with Abraham, and he says, let's start in 14. I will bring judgment on the nations that the nation that they serve. I gotta start farther back than that for it to make sense. Know for certain that your offspring, Abraham, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. This is speaking of Egypt. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And here's the key. And they, your offspring, shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now that's weird. It's part of a weird chapter where yeah. there's this nighttime ritual thing happening. But that's really, really critical to understand what's going on. He says, you're not even, I'm not going to send you in there right now because their iniquity is not yet complete. This is God's patience on display that he's going, the evil that Amorites is, it's a kind of term that's encompassing all the peoples of Canaan at this time. But this is about God's patience, right? I mean, it's, it's, I'm waiting for them to actually yeah. get to the point where they deserve what's So coming. your complaint at first may be, why is God bringing judgment upon all these, these people? Now, let's say you were a part of the group who is being oppressed or treated poorly by these people. Your complaint be, might be, God, why did you wait 400 right. years to bring this judgment? I mean, 400 years of these people growing in wickedness. And, you know, we won't get into all a ton of this stuff, but the wickedness, the type of religious practices that they're... With, yeah. with child sacrifice. Hard, hard for us to fathom what yeah, was going on. I mean, it's on. just some next level wickedness and evil. And God is patiently waiting for these people to end their wicked ways. And when his patience and mercy has run out, God is a God of justice and he acts. Yeah. And that verse really illustrates what it's, I love this line, but in Dan's book, he calls the, he calls um, Exodus 34, six, God's pinned tweet. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the tweet that gets pinned at the top yeah, of your yeah. timeline. And it's kind of like a Twitter user uses that to define, this is kind of what I'm like. So if you want to get an idea of what my Twitter profile is like, this is the main tweet to look at. And that's a good point because this verse gets repeated over and over again about the character of God. And it's, it says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, straight up, dude, the two halves of that verse, it's like we like that first half and our gut feeling doesn't like that second half. Yeah. But as we're going to see throughout the night tonight, it's that part is equally important and equally in God's nature. Mm -hmm. uh, he is patient, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, has steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps his promises. He's trustworthy, but he does not ignore evil. Yeah, that's that uh, theologian Johnny Carson. Yeah. Sooner or later, gonna. I think you mean Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash. The late Johnny night host. Carson. Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that's why I was like looking at you. I was like, I'm gonna say this wrong. Yeah. Can't be right. Yeah. But sooner or later. Sooner or later, you can run on for a long time. Yeah. But sooner or later, God will cut you down. Yeah. And that is, you know, we'll talk more about this later. So I don't want to jump ahead too much, but you have to be thinking. And as we talk, even be thinking about this. Whatever you think you want, you actually deep down don't want a God who ignores evil, who overlooks it, who has, there's no repercussions for injustice, evil, oppression, all the horrible things human beings have done. Part of God's goodness yeah. is that he sees that and cares about it and something has to be done. Yeah. He will not let wickedness go on forever. Um, and we should be more shocked at how patient and kind he's been to us personally or to the world. Yeah. I mean, definitely to Stan. Stan should have got chopped down a long time ago. That's true. I mean, if you don't know about the patience of the Lord God Almighty, man, you just introduce yourself to that guy. Yeah, and go like this. He could run on for a long time. Been and running I, on too long. I mean, and that's the thing. That's the thing about the gospel is that in, in the death of Jesus, you have God caring about justice and evil and wrath. And so it's not like Christians get in because like, oh, because God's just all rainbows and sunshine and doesn't yeah. care about evil. No, it's he dealt with evil. That's why you need forgiveness. It's right. not an overlooking. It's not like a, it's not God saying, oh, your sin, no, no big biggie. deal. Yeah, come on, man. We'll just forget about that. It's no, God takes evil and wickedness and sin serious. And um, thank God he also is merciful and compassionate. So when Israel arrives at the border of Canaan, Joshua and his army are going in to take it out and you get these texts that are troubling. That's the context is God has been patient for mm -hmm. hundreds of years with time after time. Cindy Lauper said it to, for these people we to change keep referencing songs. Yeah, just songs from <laughs> if you're lot, I was trying to see if the lyrics could work for Canaan, but they can't. So they, so they arrive there and it's, you have to picture that as the background that God has been patiently waiting for these people to mm -hmm. either turn and change or do enough of this evil that the judgment that's coming will be rightfully deserved. Yeah, and then and as we'll see, even in the judgment that is now at your doorstep, there is still a way for you to live. Yeah, that's crucial. Even, even after all of this and the armies of Israel are ready to take you out, there are still ways to remedy this at yeah, this point. Yeah, 400 years of iniquity or more, I mean, but... Yeah, you can still get out. So let's shift then. So now we're picturing that, that Israel's about to come in. There's a couple of historical misunderstandings here that I think when you understand them correctly, do kind of soften the blow of some of yeah. this stuff as well. One of them is is Israel's relative weakness compared to the nations that they're coming. And this yeah. is something that um, another book we could recommend by a friend of ours, Joshua Ryan Butler, wrote a book called yes. The Skeletons in God's Closet. He's he got two books out, but... He'll probably write more. Read everything Joshua Ryan Butler puts so out. 
great pastor, great thinker and author. And, and The Skeletons in God's Closet is a book that, that has a lot in common with Dan's book, but from a different angle. So highly recommend that. And he talks about how when we say holy war, what we picture is a powerful nation using their religion as an excuse to go crush weaker nations. Yeah. And it's the absolute opposite of what's happening with Israel. Israel arrives at the borders of Canaan outmatched in every conceivable yeah. category by the nations they're supposed to go conquer. They're technologically, strategically, numerically, mm. in every way outmatched. 40 years of wilderness wandering, mm. not a military nation. They're just showing up and these people are, have, are set up. They're, yeah. They are superior to Israel in every way. It's like Frodo going up Mordor. Yeah, there Ain't you go. Hope. Rocky versus Creed in the first movie. Ghostbusters versus Stay Puft Marshmallow keep, keep Man. Him coming, keep him coming. <laughs> Is his name Stay Puft Marshmallow Something Man? Something like that, man. Stay Puft Marshmallow <laughs> Man. It's huge, man. Remember? I do. I just was. I wanted to know if we didn't have if we didn't have a time constraint, how many of those could, could you have, going could you on, have done in a row? What's the uh, What's the guy in Karate? What's the kid in Karate Kid's name? Oh, Danielson. Danielson, you got to get yeah versus know, Cobra Kai. Now a bunch of people are into that Sweet show, delay, by the way. Stan, you you watching that? He probably watches. I'll bet he does. Stan's the type of dude that'll sweep the leg, though. You don't watch that Cobra Kai? He'll People sweep love the leg it. Real quick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so they're the they're the complete. It's not as if there's an empire who's brutally oppressing this small people group. It is this this group of people who have left slavery and have been wandering around in a wilderness for forty years. They're coming barely, you know. Yeah, and. Underdog of all they underdogs. They have no hope unless God supernaturally intervenes. And that's the key, I think, right? Is yeah. that the whole point of this is if God is not with you, you cannot win. Yeah. Uh, Joshua Ryan Butler talks about how he, he says it's like storming Fort Knox with a water pistol. That's what mm -hmm. Israel's doing. So they're, it's bringing a knife to a gunfight times 10. Like if God does not come through, you're not going to do it. He, he also compares it to like, it's, it's almost like a international scale David and Goliath situation yeah. where the whole point of the David and Goliath story is he should not win that fight. Yeah. Like Nacho and Ramses. Like Nacho and Ramses. If he didn't have the supernatural eagle, <laughs> the powers, eagle powers, he wouldn't have. That's exactly what it's like. You know, it makes me, uh, oh wow, we got a, what looks to be a hater. Joshua 11, six. No, not that one. I'm looking at the guy who no, said Jesus. I'm oh, okay. At, I'm looking at Joshua. I have a difficult time with Joshua. We can look at that at the end if we get time. Yeah. Hawking the horses. So we'll, oh, it's probably um, hamstringing the horses in Joshua 11, 6. So we'll keep that. We'll keep that one in mind. Now, um, so the arrival of Israel, again, just to finish that, the David and Goliath thing is the point of that is you have overpowering strength. You have military technology on Goliath in every st strategy. He's a man of war. David's showing up unarmored and he says, God's going to fight for me, not I'm going to fight for God. Yeah. So, okay. Then they arrive and um, this is where our kind of historical misunderstandings can cause us to picture the situations incorrectly. Um, and especially when you get into some of the really brutal texts, there's, there's four examples of this where the language of, you know, the command is destroy and leave, and leave nothing there. Yeah. Men, women, young, old, all yep. the animals, everything. And so when you, when you talk about them attacking a city, which is usually the case, so it's a city called Jericho or yeah. I or all these other cities, we picture either a modern city, which is this giant intermixing of, you know, massive civilian population. Yeah. And maybe there's some 
military law enforcement type stuff too, but mostly we think of cities as places where the people live. Mm-hmm. So a command to go kill everyone in a city sounds horrifically barbaric to us. Um, and rightfully so. Or even if we're trying to think, well, this is in the olden days, we might picture like the medieval world. At least that's where my brain goes. Yeah. When I think old timey, it's a long mm-hmm. time ago. Um, you know, that's a, this is, you know, same kind of thing, big city walls and everyone lives inside the city. Yeah. And even in, in the medieval world, if people live in the kind of surrounding areas, when there's war, they all run inside the city walls to hide in there. Now what's, What's the deal with the ancient Near Eastern world in well, comparison? Specifically, and we know this a bit from the archaeological evidence for some of these locations. So when they name one of these locations, they say city. Um, oftentimes, we're dealing with like a military fort. And there were, you know, there was like um, three things that would have been located there, like the king and his palace, the temple for the cult, the religion that was taking place there, and then the military. And then the you garrison, have, the actual outside army. Outside of the city walls, you'd have all the, I mean, they're agrarian culture, so all these people are living outside the city walls. And so oftentimes language of go and destroy the city is, it sounds like us like going into a normal city, but we're dealing with more with a kind of military assault against another military base. So there might've been primarily um, soldiers there, people who would fight in the battle. Right. Um, And not only, not only that, but like you said, that the king is there, the temple is there oftentimes and the military garrison. So it's all the enemy combatants, it's enemy soldiers and it's the king and it's the temple. So this is kind of a stronghold in multiple senses. And so the drive out language here is important because you can flee that system or you can run in and fight for it or ask that system to protect you. Um, which is, which is it, which is interesting because you'll see, and we're going to get to this in the very first story entering into the promise in the book of Joshua, where we get this sort of like, go take out this city. There's going to be only one mention of a non-combatant. And it's interesting to see what happens to the non-combatant. Yeah, absolutely. I want to mention just for the sake of intellectual honesty, we're going to, we're stopping the comments from this person who jumped in and started commenting, not because we don't want to discuss anything, but because all of the comments and questions are not what we're talking about tonight. Um, and they're kind of, you know, they don't seem like they're interested in what we're here to talk about. So, but we'll look at them if we we'll, got time. We'll look and at maybe them. We'll see if they're worth doing an episode. Yeah. On. Maybe we do an episode or we take some of them to the Q and a, but I would say we have episodes that are more, seem to be more along the line with the kind of questions you're asking, but it's not what we're talking about. It might tonight. actually be next week a little bit. Actually, that's true. It does look a lot like that because next week we're talking about whether Christianity is different from other religions and whether it's intolerant of other religions. Mm -hmm. But either way, we can't sidetrack an episode that's supposed to be about something different to talk about a bunch of unrelated stuff. So not trying to be to like shut down dialogue or anything. We just got to stay focused and we don't want to fill the chat up with unrelated stuff. Um, Okay. So as you were saying, center of it's a stronghold in a variety of ways. And the whole, the directive most of the time is drive them out. All of the people who are kind of like the citizens of that region, they don't typically live in cities. In fact, it's one of those situations where the word city being translated to city in English is at least culturally well, it's misleading. it's very flexible. So you can have like village, city, military fort, or in some case in the Old Testament, it's ref- in Old Testament, it could be like a part of a city. So let's say it's the military barracks in this much larger city. So right. it's a very flexible word. So the problem is, again, when we hear city, we have an image of that that may, may be misleading. Yeah, I agree. And, and so if you've got a ton of people who are living in the surrounding area, and word is coming that an enemy nation, an enemy army is coming. Yeah. 
you have time to flee. And that's actually or f- time to flee or time to submit and join now, that nation. Super, super important for, for this. And let's maybe get into the details of the, the first difficult yeah. story with Joshua. So in the, in the first story, it's very difficult, but you have the story of Jericho. And Israel's going to march around Jericho. And if you grew up in an evangelical church, Christian church, you learn the songs. Um, you know, the, the people marching around and the, the walls fall and then Israel comes in. Now, in this story, we encounter a woman named Rahab. And yeah. she says something specific that's important. Um, I don't know if you have the exact verse or near yeah. it, but she says... I just found it. Let's pull, okay. it, pull it up, Stan, because this is, this is right. So Joshua sends spies in to check out the city. And Rahab hides them, and she tells the spies this, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, and on and on and on. And it's and this is the key, at verse 11. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And she goes on to basically swear fealty to this God and say, I want in on Israel. I want to serve this God. I want to be part of this yeah. nation. And, and she has a, so a general acknowledgement that we all know what happened. Yeah, everyone has heard about We've what your heard God about did in what's Egypt. Going, and I, I want to be on this team. Yes. And I think the crucial thing about this is that the opening of the conquest. This is the first story. This is literally Joshua yeah. chapter two. I was it just reading. It sets the from. narrative structure and flow for the rest. Exactly. Of it. And so you're supposed to have this, this understanding going in that if somebody hears about what happens and says, I don't want to be, I don't want to be driven out and I don't want to be caught I don't want to be on team Molech anymore. Yeah. I would like to join team Yahweh. That is, that option is open because Rahab is welcomed in. She and her entire family are welcomed in. Isn't there even, um, this isn't biblical, but isn't there even Jewish tradition that says she ended up marrying Joshua? There are some traditions that say, yeah, she married, she married Joshua. And actually what's even, so a few things. First, she's, she's, she's not only spared. Okay. But she then, there's this idea that her salvation is so important. That even after 400 years and no one's, no one's repenting, that if someone were to repent after all this time, that salvation is so special that Rahab is ultimately included in some very important people's genealogy. You get to the book of Ruth and you get to the time of David and you keep going and you trace these people's line. You go all the way to Jesus. Yeah. You find out Rahab is like the great, 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 you know, grandmother of David. And then it, she's a distant, great, 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 ton of greats, grandmother of David. Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. And this is not just a Canaanite, but a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho. Yeah. Uh, and so, and it was interesting. We were listening. Which is important to mention the possible profession. There's debate about her yes. exact profession, but because people would go, well, wait a second. I thought you told it was a military outpost. There's very little women and children there. Well, yes, there would have been certain women there in these military outposts in these temples. And you can picture temple life. That and work entailed with that, and then possible prostitution all, yeah. and all this stuff. Yeah, and, it, and whether it's a it's a tavern slash inn slash brothel, which yep. most of the evidence seems to be that it's it, these places were all of those things at once. Yeah, because people debate it was just an inn, or but it's like, come on, there's there's more right. stuff going on here. So that and is huge. It's huge. And as the, a, the Gentile woman of the sinful profession, with a mere confession. Yeah. is saved and not and just included to be included into the genealogy. Exactly. And not just to become a slave, 
but to actually become ancestor to David. So if you're in the Old Testament world, the greatest king of Israel's history. Mm -hmm. And then when you come into the New Testament, she's in the lineage of the king of kings. Yeah. So this is really crucial, I think, to, un to having a framework for the entire book of Joshua and the entire conquest of Canaan. I mean, think about the fact that we were listening to a scholar earlier today. In fact, um, I'll include this guy's video in the description of our video or in the yeah. comments or some somewhere um, because it's really worth watching. It's way more technical and nerdy than what we're doing. Yeah. And it's basically just an hour long breakdown of the Jericho story. But one of the things he pointed out was that the amount of space in the text dedicated to Rahab and the story of her acceptance yeah. into Israel is almost equivalent to the amount describing the destruction of Jericho. Yeah. In terms of word count. And it's almost, if you look at word count, it's almost as if it's trying to take the God's pin tweet and yeah. put it in a narrative yeah, form. That's is right. that both of these attributes of God are on display that the adjustments, the justice that comes after 400 years of disobedience, but also anyone who would turn to the Lord, including Rahab shall be saved. So, so to say it again, it's not like we're trying to say there's no violence in the old, like this is still violent. This is still judgment on these nations. And even if it's military people and armies being killed in battle, that's still violent, but dismiss this idea from your, from your mind of, well, this powerful nation is just coming in and trampling on innocent there's people left and right. Nothing anyone could do. You were just hopeless no matter what. And it's just the opening story says that that's, that's not how it went down. Yeah. And God's already shown that about his nature a bunch of times by the time you arrive at Joshua. Mm -hmm. I mean, we think about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where God's like, I'm destroying this place. It's evil. And Abraham pleads with God and says, well, what if I can find 15 good people? Yeah. That's another important note. And so we don't just gloss over it, like focus on that. So in the Abraham story, God's going to bring judgment upon a city for wickedness, very much parallel to this. And Abraham says, like, what if, what if there's 10, 10 righteous people? Pretty low bar. Yeah. And it's like, God's like, sure. For God says for 10 people, I would spare the city. Yeah. And you get down and I forget what number does he start off with? I don't, I can't remember either. And I can't, is it anyway? Cause like 10 to 20, it's like, come on, God. By the end, he's like, if I could find, if like, I could find <laughs> it, just, you know, anyone that's righteous. And the idea is that if someone is righteous in this corrupt city, God would spare it. The city, not just the yeah, people. And so God, and that is that understanding of God must be brought into our interpretation of these, these passages. Right. So when they show up at Jericho, the thing you should already be thinking is, man, when when they show up, these are not innocents. Um, that term just doesn't belong in these stories. God, God is merciful. He's patient. Um, and if I think you're really supposed to read that opening story in Joshua and come into the rest of that book with the understanding that if any of these people did what Rahab did, they would be accepted. I mean, who else, who would be, who would be denied if Rahab's accepted? Yeah, that's, the prostitute that's the in Jericho. That's the idea. Who would God deny? And so, again, when you read each of these accounts, stop and remind yourself, these people heard about what God did in Egypt. They have the opportunity to flee, which is actually what God wants them to do, I think. It's get out of here. Mm -hmm. We're going to, and part of the, part of the point of destroying these strategic cities is you're destroying the the influence of the religion of those places. Yeah. That's why if, the temple if being If you stay there. and fight for that king in that temple, then there's death. And that's, um, as you said, that's the reality of the text. I don't want to wiggle, you know, because you could try to wiggle out of it and yeah. be like, well, it doesn't mean that. And it, it's like, God says just, just judgment is coming. And that's what happens. And yeah. it's 
there's a lot of death. So you can be like Rahab or you can stay and fight for your God mm. and your king. And if you do, this is what's coming. Um, and again, this is the tough part, but hey, if, if that's what you see in the text, it is not your job to stand in moral judgment over God and say, well, I don't like that. That he, he stands in moral judgment over you, not the other way around. And so, mm-hmm. so again, but, but we cannot overemphasize how significant that story of Rahab and Jericho is. And also the rest of the story reemphasizes the same idea that you have, you know, the idea of, of Israel's military weakness. Like they don't come in guns blazing and take no, Jericho they, out. They do a little hippie dance around the thing. Yeah, for- they walk around it over and over and over again. Now, there's another thing about this that I think is equally helpful in understanding what's going on. Oh, thank you, Dina threw in. Um, He did start with 50. Thank you, Dina. And it's in Genesis chapter 18 that he goes, if there's 50 righteous people. Then he narrows it down. And then God's like, sure. And Abraham, this is interesting too, because you know Abraham's familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And he goes, he immediately probably is going like, I don't think I can find 50 righteous people in there. And by the end, I think it's 10. I think that's what he ends up with. Dina can confirm. Um, Oh, Augustina knew it was 50 as well. Good job, you guys. You know, more than both of your teaching pastors about Genesis 18. Too old for this job, Um, Now, there's another thing going on in all of these texts that I think is also important, and that has to do, and this is really hard to understand and to explain, but it's very important, and it has to do with the genre that these texts are written in. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot on Theology Thursday already about genres and how they work, that you don't read you know, a, a, a science fiction novel, the same way you read a newspaper or a text message, you have to learn how to read each type of literature differently. And all of these conquest texts and many other Old Testament texts are written in what would have been a standard and understood military genre of the time. This kind of ancient, they just call them in the literature military texts, but they're, it's ancient Near Eastern military texts. There's text. even a reference in numbers. And this is a whole other thing that I probably shouldn't even open up, but, um, it's like the book of the wars of Yahweh. Um, oh yeah. There's yeah, yeah. A, and like, it's like, this was recorded in, in this and it's like, we don't have it. We don't have access to it, but it's, it's still this idea that there's these books of the wars of, of Israel. And that doesn't mean they're inspired. It doesn't mean it should have been in the Bible. Right. And there's this lost book of the Bible. That's, yeah, that's God gave us like the a, Bible. He wanted us to yeah, have exactly. But um, there are these texts that talk about the battles that took place. And oftentimes there's language that's used. That's, that's, important because it's it's um it uses the language that's from that genre which oftentimes to us when it gets to us in english can be misleading we already gave an example about city yeah city is one example of that another example and this is really important for people because there's there's those four texts in particular where the command is men women young old animals you know, it's, it's like this incredibly comprehensive yeah. kill everyone and everything in this place. Um, and so it's important to understand that a standard feature, and again, we don't, we have this from outside the Bible, from other ancient Near Eastern peoples as well. Um, there's this literary feature of these kind of gigantic scale statements that are meant to be comprehensive, but not specific. Is that a good way to say yeah, that? So, well, yeah. And, and even if they are, It'd be like if I were to say, go into to that fort and destroy everything that moves. Yeah. Donkey, goat, grass, every creepy thing. Yeah. Everything that flies, everything with feather. But when you go into that place, there might not be any donkeys or goats. There just may, may be a bunch of people ready to battle. Yeah. But the language is still 
totality. It's yeah. destroy everything. But when you go into a military base, there's you no women be, and children. You shouldn't there. be expecting that. You shouldn't be expecting to see children. And in fact, one of the things they would do is you'd put the el- and we see this with Israel. There's a story in in the Torah where Israel is going around in the de- the, the desert, and you have um, them getting attacked from the back. And it's important because who would be in the back? Well, it would be the women, children, and the elderly. Yeah. Everyone else who is strong and ready for battle should be up front. And God's really angry at the nation that does that because Jeez. it's a, it's a at the time, understood to be a cowardly, evil thing. Yeah. They're attacking the back of the people where the women yeah. and children are. God, God doesn't judge the nations for not following Torah dietary laws. Right. He judges them for wickedness in the broad general sense. And so that was a wicked thing. It's like, you're attacking the women and children and the elderly, like what's going on? So you have to understand these military bases weren't places for women and children. And if they were there, if there's a military group approaching, they're not going to be like, oh, let's make sure the women and children all stay here and make yeah, sure our elderly stay here, there. the vulnerable stay here. They most likely would not have been there. Now, I don't know. That's where I don't want to like. Yeah. We're not saying we promise you that there were no, yeah. It's just in the big picture of things, you're not expecting a battle to take place with all of those people fighting the battles. They would have been put in a different location. They could have fled. They would have been put to outside of the city walls and reserved from battle in case they would have been in the driven out category. They wouldn't have been in the the other category. So who knows exactly every last detail, but in principle, you're not going to the military base expecting to run into a bunch of elderly, vulnerable women and children. Yeah, and like linguistic idioms like that, totally, we do that all the time, even in our own modern language. So when it's, there's something called a merism, which is that you you kind of list parts of something to describe the whole of it. So it's sort of like saying heaven and earth doesn't just mean heaven and earth. It's talking about everything. Stan in, annoys me all the time. All the time. Well, that one's also literally it's not true. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> It's not all of the yeah, time. Like we, well, the best, I mean, the best example of this, and I might've shared this on a different episode. Um, Elijah and the prophets of, of Baal. Yeah. Go to Mount Baal, Carmel. Um, Baal. <laughs> and it says all of Israel is brought there. Now, all of Israel doesn't mean every last Israelite within the geographic boundaries yeah. of what is the promised land. It can't possibly mean that because they can't fit on Mount Carmel. Yeah, you, it's not it's not big enough. So oftentimes the Bible uses, or it'll say, and then all of Israel went to fight against this people. Yeah. Or all of Israel. There's one um, when David brings the ark into the city, mm-hmm. all Israel comes to celebrate. Yeah. But and they're not all coming all of Israel could have possibly been in that location. And it says all of Israel fought against these people. It's actually not referring to every last Israelite. It's referring yeah. to probably the the men who are of military age, that yeah. all of Israel fought against. Everyone them. who would be expected to fight. And all of Israel is out in Mount Carmel for Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It's not every last individual. That is general language that you go, okay, what is that being right. applied to? So, And part of how you know this is true is because over and over again in these stories, when that language of totality is used, yeah. you wipe out every single person of this people group. They show up Again. later in the same book by the same author. And these guys aren't dumb. So like we can use one of the examples. Yeah, this is really important. You need to catch, catch First this Samuel concept. 15. We'll just throw it right up, even though it's one of the most horrible sounding ones. Um, but you're, this is a good example of this language. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is Samuel talking, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill. And this is an interesting linguistic thing. 
the Hebrew here should probably be from man to woman. So it's that kind of merism idea. Child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So that's like horrific sounding. Totality. Annihilation. Kill everybody. We want all of them out of here. Now, same author, same book. In 1 Samuel 27, verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. Mm-hmm. Well, wait, I thought we destroyed all of them a minute ago. And by the way, it, it does actually confirm in the text that they went on to do that. Yeah. And so the only one who's left, it says, is the king. And then Samuel actually yeah. personally takes the king There's like four or out. five examples of these where it says like everyone was destroyed, every last yeah. one. And then like... Caleb drives out, drives out all the Anakim from Hebron. Yeah. Later, they're in Hebron still. And they're still there. And so what this is really important. If that wasn't there, you'd want to be honest with the text and say, well, this could be hyperbolic language, or maybe it's not. I have right. no reason to believe that they didn't kill every last living thing in this city. But the scripture itself is telling you there's still people there. And why is that? So it's it's doing your best with the language that's used and articulated and also with what the text is actually saying just a few chapters later. Yeah, absolutely. And again, these if you have been watching the show and especially if you've been studying the Bible on your own, you know these authors are so they're so careful. They're so thoughtful. Everything is done with such intentionality. They know what they're it's doing. not like the author of Joshua or First Samuel is going like, Oh dang, I put the Amalekites back in here later, like, but I, I had already said they were all destroyed early. Mm-hmm. This was an understood and accepted genre that everyone would it's not dishonest. People know when they read that that this is the type of language that's used to talk about a an overwhelming victory. It doesn't have to be to the level of kind of comprehensiveness that it sounds like in the text. So again, it's not it's not to say that there's no such thing Tons as, of people are still dying. People are still dying. And, and God and the the biblical authors see it as a right and fair judgment that God has the right to give life and to take it away. And by the way, he does that for every last human being to ever walk the face of the earth. Right. Yeah. We all. If you have, believe in an all-powerful God. Yeah. And so you have to wrestle with that no matter what. Um, but the issue here is that it's this judgment coming upon these people. Now, what's interesting too, though, is the other reason why I think there's something else going on is if if like Israel is supposed to just kill every last women, women children, donkeys, everything. In the Torah itself, it gives commands on what you are to do with the foreigner, the widow, these people who are vulnerable, and you're right. supposed to treat them fairly. Yeah. So Beyond fairly even, because the Hebrew concept of justice means bring them up yes. to match the level of everyone else. So it's like, well, where, where are these people, where, where are all these people coming from that there's whole Torah commands yeah. to them? So Again, you're not trying to wiggle out of problem text. You're trying to take this text that's difficult and put it in light of all of these other things and say, well, what exactly is going on? And then because we have archaeological evidence, because we have the language that city doesn't necessarily mean entire Hollister, California type of thing, we're going, you're putting the pieces together and trying to figure out what's going on. And when you do that, a composite picture begins to emerge. Yeah, and I think for me, I know we spent a lot of time on it, the most comforting thing in all of this really is the story of Rahab. It's like right here at the top of the conquest, you have a really long, for this type of section of the Bible, a really long and drawn out narrative about how God accepts a Canaanite who, who turns to him 
in submission. And so, yeah. and, okay. And maybe that's a good bridge because in a sense, Rahab, Rahab's salvation before Joshua is like running a parallel, um, typological in a, in a yeah. typological way to the stories of the gospels, because you have Jesus who offers salvation freely. And it's like, whose team do you want to be on? And you just believe and you receive by faith. Now, this is what's important is no matter what, what's going on in those, those passages, how is a new Testament Christian supposed to live? Nowhere are you getting God saying, it is my judgment that you, you have to go and yeah. Christians bring, go kill the bad guys. No. In the New Testament, you're getting the ethic that I believe is embodied in these stories is that there's a way of salvation that God freely provides. And so Christians are told to love their enemies. We can't, it's not like we get to look down upon others and say, oh man, man, I can't, I hope, hopefully God takes you guys out. And by the way, even in the Old Testament. This is a, no. a historically specific moment in Israel's history. That's right. It's not built into the, the Torah or the That's laws important. of Israel to go and kill your enemies every That's time important. you want either. It's get them out of the land that I promised Abraham, and then you sit tight. Targeted, precise, situational judgments of God, yeah. um, which he does to Israel itself with the Babylonian destruction yeah. of Jerusalem and the exile. But especially by the New Testament, it's vengeance is God's. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. You are to love your enemy. You are to turn the other cheek. And, and the power of the gospel is that God cares about saving Rahab so much that when his son, Jesus comes, the second person of the Trinity appears on the scene, the son puts on flesh. He goes not to bring down judgment upon God's enemies, but he comes to die for his enemies to give them the opportunity that God in the Old Testament gave to Rahab. And if you refuse that, right. if you refuse that, yeah. just like in Jericho, they said, oh man, we know about this God. We know what, he, what he's done, uh, but we're still going to stand by our gods. Yeah. If you refuse that, you ultimately- you to stand in the way of God's judgment and not take the shelter he's offered you. Ultimately, the New Testament says you, you are condemned. Right. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And you know, part of this too, don't you think- has to do with the fact that we in the West are so sheltered from true evil, brutality, horrific yeah. injustices and war and, and violence and slavery and, and so much of, the, in the modern Western world, I'm not saying it doesn't exist and there are places in every country where it happens, but I mean, if you're, if you're living in a remote part of the developing world where warlords are coming in and kidnapping your children and turning them into slaves... You're yeah. not just hoping, well, I hope God is just super patient. Which is, and this isn't a hypothetical. This, is, this real. is the real world. They come in and steal your children and give them a horrific life, turn them into soldiers. They, the, what was almost everyone forgot about all in, in Nigeria with all the girls getting kidnapped yeah, absolutely. from school. As a, as a people in those situations, you say, God, how long until you act? Yeah. How long till your justice comes? And that is the tension. Yeah. Is God's loving, compassionate patience waiting for people to repent versus his holy justice. And that's yeah. why believers who are in those situations, they cry out, how long? You know, one of the most interesting things is is for, for Christians in what we'll call in, in a world where it's pretty good living. And so Christians in, in our context, in the United States, how often 
do you pray, please, Jesus, come again. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And you may do that regularly, and your Bible tells you to do so. But how much? How often do you long for but it? But for many Christians in our context, the longing for Jesus to come and do away with wickedness and evil is not as there as, as acutely as it would have been for many Christians in, in the world today. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's, and the, you know, the scandal and beauty of the gospel is that even those perpetuators of the most horrific acts imaginable, if they turn to God, even their evil, as horrific as it is, yeah. will have been dealt with at the cross. And so God's still in those cases. He's not overlooking it. It's that he is yeah. taking it upon himself. Yeah. And so, so, so in the Old Testament, God, you know, because it's, it's scandalous because we want God to forgive people who, like, like me. Yeah. I ain't that bad. Good man. people. And, but what, what God does at the beginning of the book of Joshua is I'm going to save Rahab. And then in the book of Acts, special attention is drawn to an individual by the name of Paul the Apostle. Right. A person who's, I'm going to, I'm going to go save the one who's killing the Christians. Killing my people. Yeah. And that's the one who's going to get grace. And that is the God revealed in the pinned tweet. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think of Ezekiel, I wrote it down, Ezekiel 18, 23. This is the Old Testament and God himself says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. I mean, that's Old Testament. This is, you know, the hyperviolent God of the Old Testament. I, it doesn't please me when the wicked die. Yeah. I would rather them turn to me and live. And so that's, that's been God's nature from the beginning and, th and thank God it is. And so we, you know, we have this truth that, that God desires salvation and repentance, even from the most wicked of people. And knowing that, and this is how Dan finishes his chapter, that the trajectory of history, according to the Bible, is towards a world without violence, without war, mm -hmm. swords are beaten into plowshares. And it's, it is, it's about peace and justice having been served once and for all forever. So this is the world that God wants and is bringing about. And so I think, you know, you have to, you have to have a robust full storyline picture of the character of God and the desires and will of God and bring those to the text. Um, and again, it's, it's, there's still stuff there. Yep. That and is hold, hold it, hold it in tension. The justice passages, the difficult passages, as well as the grace and mercy passages. And at the end of the day, it may not all make sense. You may not like it all, but that tension is a good thing. Thank yeah. God he is who he is, that he is both loving and just. Yeah. I think we could end on that. What do you think, Stan? This is your last chance to uh, pop in. and. That was great, you guys. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. What? <laughs> did I you can't say... hear myself <laughs> talking. It's weird. It's like did on delay. Say, did you try Thanks to say be a part? Thanks for letting me be a part of it. He like he went to full incoherence at the uh, you. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed your first and last time speaking on Theology Thursday. <laughs> Glad that you could be a part of it. Hey, thank you guys all so much for being here. Um, to the dude who jumped in, so sorry. We weren't trying to shut down dialogue. We just wanted to make sure we stayed focused. But next week, we are going to talk about the uniqueness of Jesus and Christianity and whether or not Christianity is intolerant of other religions. So get your questions into the Q&A. Yeah. We'll see you guys next week.